Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining me, whether this is your first time or you are a longtime listener. This podcast is almost four years old, which is pretty crazy. Been doing this for a little while now. I actually just posted something on Instagram recently. Like, I feel like with work, I I have never until this podcast or for the last four or five years of my life really done anything for work that kept my interest and kept me curious and inspired as much as this project has. I feel just as inspired by it since the day I started it. And yeah, it's interesting to reflect. I I feel quite proud of myself for creating this project in a way that I felt it would be able to be sustained. Um, not having ads, for example, being incredibly intuitive and flexible with myself around when I released episodes, how I released episodes, being relatively open-ended about topics and allowing the project to grow alongside me. So the people that you hear on the podcast come on the podcast because I'm interested in that particular topic at that given time. The solo episodes that I put out are because I'm curious about something or inspired by something or want to share something in that moment. It's super authentic to my own journey. And that feels really good. And I feel really appreciative that all of you are here because without you, it would just be me talking to myself pretty much. Um, but I feel that even the way that I've approached it as far as um, my intuition around it all, you know, not not releasing episodes just for the sake of releasing episodes, not releasing episodes weekly just for the sake of keeping a schedule and not being overly concerned about like, oh, does this like fit in with the overall theme of the show? I think the theme of the show is quite broad, so I don't normally feel that crisis, but I but I don't think too, too much about like how something will be received. And I think my capacity to do that, which is a practice and not something I used to be good at, I was definitely a control freak and a perfectionist and in a former life would have been very distressed if like three weeks went by without releasing a show. Like there's been like months or a month, maybe, maybe that's the longest, a month, six weeks off because I was going through something in my life. And, but I feel like I constantly get this feedback from all of you. That's like, thank you. You released this episode at the exact right time that I needed to hear it. And I feel like 
whatever's going on with me, you know, as far as my own intuition and listening and patience and receptivity and sort of like surrender to whatever this, the life of this project wants to be on its own, I feel like it's communicating with all of you, whatever that magical stuff of, you know, fate or connection or synchronicity that's existing is being communicated back and forth between you and between me. So it's like, I feel like I have a responsibility to all of you to remain receptive and remain patient and remain slow and remain to sort of the sur- just surrendering to what this project wants to be. So very excited every time I sit down either to record an interview or a solo episode or record these intros. I feel like I probably repeat myself constantly around my gratitude and appreciation for your participation participation in this project and support of me, but I really do feel that very deeply and I feel the need to repeat myself about it and, and not forget how magical that is and how grateful I am to be able to do this because it feeds me so much and hopefully feeds all of you as well. Very interesting that I'm back into Panga. For those of you that have been listening to this podcast for a long time, when I started it for three and a half, four years ago, uh, late 2018, I was living in Topanga. It was a very, very, very difficult and challenging time for me in my life. Um, I spent a couple of years really changing everything about my life, leaving my marriage, leaving my house, leaving my job, breaking up with you know friends, family, romantic partners, trying to find myself and going through an intense dark night of the soul, which um, had a lot of emotional transformations, psychological transformation, shadow work. I got incredibly physically sick. I had really, really, really terrible acne, but I always say that like that's like acne is not the way to describe it. Like my face was like one giant cystic lesion, basically. It was horrifying as someone who I think put a lot of value in their appearance and their like success and capacity to keep things together. All of a sudden I could keep nothing together and I could no longer lean on all of these external uh, forms of value and meaning. And I found myself facing myself for the first time in a way that was absolutely terrifying. Having said that, I deeply miss that time in my life. I know I've said this before, but it is worth repeating for anyone, especially who is in that phase of their life right now or sees that coming down the road. There is immense joy and gratitude within the space of grief. And that's not to say that the joy and the gratitude is like the reason, like it doesn't make it better, (laughs) necessarily. And and that's, I think, a theme of this podcast episode that you're about to hear with Stephen Jenkinson quite a bit. But there's something about the depth in general that is unmatched. And I would, at the time, I don't know if I would say this, but at this point in my life, looking back, I would absolutely go through that period of time again, and I wouldn't do anything differently. And I would be okay if it lasted even longer than it did because it felt so real and it felt so pure and it felt so important and like the least I could do to ground myself into 
the devastation of the planet and the world and my own life. And it was full of reverence. There's something so potently beautiful and humbling about getting to the point where you have to surrender because you've tried every single possible mode of control or trying to hurry something up or cut corners or move around something and there's just nothing else to do but accept. And you can't force that. It doesn't happen. You can't just like turn your grief into gratitude. Like this isn't like a five-step process you buy a book about, you really have to sort of surrender to being torn apart and enter into a gauntlet of sorts and just say, take me. I have no idea if I'll come out of this. I don't have no idea if I'll come out of this alive, but it doesn't matter. This is where I am and this is where I'm going. And I know that the only way out of this is through it. And there normally is a way out, which is not to say you won't get thrown into yet another gauntlet at some other point in your life, but life is about cycles and phases and stages. But what's even more interesting about being back in Topanga right now and and releasing this episode while I'm in Topanga is that when I was in Topanga was when I discovered Stephen Jenkinson's work for the first time. And I think it was also actually in late 2018. So around the time that I started my podcast, I had been very involved in my own grief and learning about grief, particularly through um, Francis Weller, whose work I recommend quite a bit. Uh, he wrote a book called The Wild Edge of Sorrow, which is definitely one of my favorite books of all time. Martin Prechtel, who wrote The Smell of Rain on Dust, another really beautiful book about grief. Very unconventional books about grief as well, uh, which I appreciated. Very poetic, very uh, metaphorical, um, not just like talking about stages of grief or, uh, yeah, like coping strategies or something. Um, really beautiful. And then... I I had actually taken a break from listening to podcasts for probably about a year. So like all of 2018, even though I had listened to podcasts so much in 2017, I took a break from them in 2018 because I knew I was starting my own podcast and I was so, I felt so influenced and inspired by other people who were doing it, but I was afraid that I might just do what they were doing. And so I took a break from several podcasts that I listen to frequently to give me space to hear my own voice and to develop my own creative process and uh, desires for how I wanted to create my show. But then one of the podcasts that I listened to all the time that I had taken a break from was Chris Ryan's podcast, Tangentially Speaking, which I discovered in 2017 after reading Sex at Dawn, I guess, back in like 2014 or 2015 or something like that. And I loved his podcast, but I took a break from it until I saw that he posted that he had spoken to Stephen Jenkinson. And I hadn't heard of Stephen Jenkinson, but I saw words like grief and elderhood and uh, 
was like, hell yeah, this sounds like my thing. So I listened to it and it was such an incredibly moving episode. Chris happened to be recording it on the day of his father's memorial service, which felt incredibly, I don't know, synchronicity doesn't even feel like the right word here. It feels too light, um, which isn't to say that it is, but it's not the right word. But it it was very meaningful and very moving and full of depth, and I appreciated it so much. And yeah, was so affected by what Stephen had to say in general, and just felt. I think I probably listened to that episode two or three times, which I I recommend you do when you listen to Stephen because every single time you listen to him say the same thing, you learn something new. There's so much depth in his words that it's almost impossible to absorb it one one time, just through listening, just listening to him one time. So anyway, I listened to that podcast episode and I had been in touch with Chris uh, maybe a year or so prior. I knew he lived in Topanga. I lived in Topanga. I wanted to meet up, but I was going through such a hard time in my life and was living in a bit of a cocoon and also just really ashamed of what had happened to me physically. But it was one of the first things and times in my life that I felt like I was trusting my, I was just trusting of the timing. And I think I felt like, oh, if I don't like meet these people or if I don't make these connections now, I'm going to lose it. And I really tried very hard to push up against that and to try to find like, where is the uh, middle ground between Like, I don't want to be lazy or just afraid or opt out. Like, oh, I'm just trusting the timing. In other words, I'm doing nothing. (laughs) Like, I'm just, I'm not moving forward. I'm not trying to manifest anything because I'm too afraid. Like, where's the balance between that and trusting the timing in a, a conscious, mature, and challenging way? Um, And really trying not to push things too much or try to control things. But after I heard this episode that he did with Stephen Jenkinson, I was late 2018 and I finally thought like, okay, it's time for me to like get out in the world and meet people. And so I got back in touch with Chris and then the next day I said like, hey, we should grab a coffee. And the next day we got evacuated from our homes because of the, it was a really terrible wildfire in Malibu. And we were evacuated for like nine days. So that was a bit of a, grief festival, fear festival. I feel like it felt like the end of the world there for a second. Um, But we did get back into our homes. They were safe because, you know, the wind just didn't happen to blow in the direction that we lived. It all felt so precarious and arbitrary. Wildfires, you know, if the wind had just been blowing in a slightly different direction, everything changes. Anyway, we met just after that, after we got back into our homes. And so I I really associate my learning about Stephen and listening to him and delving deeper into his work with the start of a new phase of my life. So it feels very fitting for me to be back in Topanga releasing this episode for all of you. Time, the cyclical nature of time works in mysterious ways, in beautiful ways. I love, 
I love the feeling of circling back around to a place or a thing or a feeling or a person and, you know, having experienced the trajectory of the previous cycle or multiple cycles and seeing how different we are and, and reflecting on that change and that growth. So I have to say that I wanted to have Stephen on the podcast from the beginning, but I found him to be so smart and so eloquent and a bit intimidating, to be honest, that I didn't feel, I didn't feel worthy, uh, which is ironic because he has a book about this about and, and speaks about this a lot, like how important it is for us to get worthy, as he says. And as a, you know, an individual, but especially as a generation or, you know, a collective. And, but anyway, I didn't pursue it because imposter syndrome. And then I got an email from Kimberly Ann Johnson, who was on the podcast before a couple of years ago. I love her work as well. And she did a couple of podcast episodes with Stephen back in the fall of 2021 that I listened to when I was in Guatemala. And holy shit, were they fucking incredible. They spoke about things regarding community and the pandemic and grief and elderhood in a way that just felt so utterly refreshing, especially at that time. I'd heard Stephen talk so much at that point and have read a lot of his work, but it was so potent to hear him talk about the specific time that we're in, especially relative to COVID. I sent it to so many people. I think I probably even recommended it on the podcast or at least on social media. And then uh, Kimberly and Stephen did a series of five talks following those podcast episodes because they seemed to resonate so much and were so successful. And I also participated in those. I remember listening to them. We came back to the U.S. briefly in November and we were packing up the van to spend just like a month in Utah. And I remember listening to them while packing up the van. But they were also incredible and beautiful and uh like how many more words like this can I possibly use? I think you get the point. But then they took those conversations, the transcripts from those conversations and turned them into a book called Reckoning, which just came out yesterday, August 16th. And Kimberly reached out to me and said, hey, Stephen Jenkinson and I came out with this book. It's based on the transcripts of the conversations, but there's some letters that we wrote to each other and some other things in the book. And would you be willing to help us promote it? And of course I said yes. <laughs> um, so I recorded this first conversation with Stephen and then you will hear on the next episode that I released sometime in the next week, my conversation with Kimberly. And I also think I'm going to actually interview them together. So you're going to hear about these topics a few times, but it's worth it because they're so rich and so important. And I think relatively unconventional from the conversations we hear about these topics in general. And you know me, how much I love having unconventional, nuanced conversations. So can never have too many. So I feel grateful to, for Kimberly for reaching out to me because I'm not so sure I would have been able to have the courage to reach out to Stephen, at least not this time. I think I would have eventually. He also said he was like taking a break from the media. So that was a really nice, handy excuse that I could make for myself to not reach out. <laughs> like, oh no, I don't want to bother him. Uh, but Kimberly handed this opportunity to me opportunity to me on a silver platter, and I'm incredibly grateful that she did that and uh, very much recommend uh, this book. The conversations that they had were, oh, just fantastic. So 
I feel like my words are very insufficient compared to um, what you will hear Stephen say. So I don't want to talk for too much longer. Um, as always, if you would like to join us on Substack, you can comment live on every podcast episode, discuss the episode with me, ask questions, discuss it with other listeners. You do not have to pay for this service. Everything that I offer on Substack, the, the community, the writing that I put out, is totally free. You are able to donate financially if you have the means and you feel inspired, uh, but everything is free. So I hope you will join us. Uh, I just was actually featured on Substack's like featured post or featured publications page. So if you are here for the first time through that, uh, thank you. So many new people subscribed to my Substack, which is incredibly overwhelming, <laughs> um, but I'm really grateful that you're here. And uh, yeah, please join us. Anya Katz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S.substack.com. Lots of cool things happening over there. I really created a Substack because I wanted to create a written and visual component to this podcast and make it sort of a more overarching multimedia project than just the podcast itself. So it's been really fun to be able to express myself in written form and as well as in podcast form and send out some poetry and post some open threads so we can talk about different topics together. It's been a whole lot of fun. All right. I think that's it. Uh, I will be in LA for the next five days. And then Chris and I are leaving in the van. We will be traveling in the van for two and a half months, three months, something like that, at least through the beginning of November, if not a bit longer. If you go to anyakotz.com slash podcast dash meetups, we are planning to do meetups around basically the West, California, uh, Utah, um, Washington, Oregon, etc. We need all of your help to help us find a spot that works. We have one meetup confirmed already in uh, Kalispell. Yeah, Kalispell, Montana. Um, and yeah, we need to confirm the rest. So take a look at that. I would love to meet you. You don't have to sign up or anything like that. Just show up and Chris and I will both be there. We'll be co-hosting all of them. Would really, really love to meet you. I know sometimes it can feel intimidating to go to that kind of a meetup or to meet me or to meet Chris who you don't know and who you just hear in a podcast, but I, pl I promise we're just normal people who want to meet you guys as much as you might want to meet us. And we're nervous to meet you all too. So please don't hesitate to come by. Please don't. We have had some people that show up and like, don't even come introduce themselves and then email us later. And be like, I was too scared. Um, just come and tell us you're scared. It's totally fine. We're cool. And you guys are awesome. Like I have so many friends that I've met through the podcast and I really honestly created the podcast to meet people because I didn't know where to find like-minded people. So not the only reason I created this project, but I got to be honest and say that it was a big reason. Like, I don't know where to find these people, but if I just like grab a microphone and start talking about my opinions and my thoughts and sharing things that are interesting to me, like maybe I'll magnetize other people like me. And it's, it worked and it was amazing and it's still amazing. And it's such a beautiful community that I am really grateful to be a part of. So on that note, I am going to play you in today with uh, a song by Stephen Jenkinson and Gre Gregory Hoskins. Uh, they have a band called Knights of Grief and Mystery. 
and have a couple of records out that are really, really wonderful, include a lot of Stephen's writing and really beautiful music. And I had a really difficult time figuring out which one to play. Um, but I chose Invocation on uh, Rough Gods from Rough Gods. So I wanted to play that for you. And yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting my work. Please join us on Substack, anyakots.substack.com. Sending my love to you all, wherever you are in the world. Find some space and time to really focus on this one. It's it's worth it. And if you have time to listen to it a couple times, I also recommend it. Also, please check out Reckoning, the book that he wrote with Kimberly. I will put the links to all of that in the episode description as per usual. And check out his work in general and Kimberly's. They're both fantastic. I really love and appreciate all that they are doing in the world. It's really nice to know that people like them exist and that people like you exist and we're a lot less alone, I think, than we often feel. So I appreciate all the ways that we can connect with each other, even though they may be insufficient and remote and through technology, it is still so much better than nothing. So thank you for making this project what it is and supporting me and all of the people that I bring on the show. Without further ado, please enjoy this song, please enjoy this conversation, and I'll catch you on the other side. So welcome, friends, for friends we may soon be, friends there forged on that dark road, the one that's heading out of town. You know it now, we're headed there, and here we are gathered, you perchance before your old ones and we perhaps before ours. How shall we be then? And what shall we say now that the call and the summons and the plea is gone out? Ah, it is better that we make as though many a thing hangs there in the rafters and hangs in the balance. As if how we are with each other, well, that is how the lords of chance will be with us. As if what we say this very evening brings in the saints, the ancients of days, or brings down the darkness and the rough gods. So welcome to this cosmic constant of ours. All our frailties, all our undoings, all our endings. Welcome to that one true glory of your life that cannot wither, cannot age, cannot fall down. Welcome to that plea from all of your unsuspected kin, trudging that lost nation road, even now. We are modern, and we are homeless, and we are confused by freedom. And so we've left them to themselves. 
or to each other or to their God as we ourselves seem now to have been left. Welcome to your one true love, the one that was wrangled from all the promises and all the betrayals and all of the octane of your younger and wilder days. All that's left is to welcome you to this catastrophe, to this old road for going down into the mystery days. A road that was braided and made by those who came before. Whose longing after life made a path through the easy terrors. And through that boredom without end. And into life. Who loved being alive as much as anyone here. And who for all of that died more or less on schedule who angled not for Neverland, not forever and ever and ever, amen, but for now, and for us, and for this. Okay, we are live in two very different places, but live nonetheless. I'm here with Stephen Jenkinson, and I, I'm super grateful to be having this conversation. I've been a fan of your work for a very long time. Um, and I actually think your work was a major inspiration in this project. I, I use your phrase, troubled times, to uh, sort of as the um, unofficial tagline of the podcast about finding meaning, authenticity, and belonging in troubled times. As someone in my generation, kind of feel like that's all we can do. So I guess I'd love to start with, you speak a lot about, I know you wrote a book about generations worth. And it's definitely something I feel like I struggle with. I know a lot of people in my generation struggle with because I think we're so hungry for elders and mentors. But I think it's this weird phase where I feel both called to sort of step into these leadership positions where people are listening to me and at the same time feel totally inadequate to do so and craving direction and guidance and often feel um, disappointed by the lack thereof. So I'd love if you could speak a little bit to that transition, um, just of coming of age in that, in that way. Well, the transition for people of your age, you mean? Well, particularly my age in this time, but in general, that sort of conflict between you know, when is the time to feel worthy of, of, mm. um, of personhood, I mm. suppose. Okay. That's a good. That last part's a good question. Mm. Um, well, first of all, I wouldn't, if I were you place great premium on the feelings that you've referred to feelings of worthiness, feelings of adequacy, feelings of 
being the the person that younger people are looking for, that kind of thing. The reason for that is it's it's like training for an Olympic event and insisting on feeling that you've already run the race before you do it. You you won't it won't happen that way. It'll never come to you that way. Number one and number two, you know, feeling adequate, feeling confident could be an error in judgment. I mean, it's very important if you're going to occupy that position in somebody else's life that you do so fessing up to the fact that they could very well be wrong about you. And that, that in fact, their, their, their poverty in this regard, their grasping after you may be an indication that, um, that their imagination is, is itself an impoverished thing. And their prior contact with personhood or elderhood um, leads them to certain fairly faulty assumptions about how it should be. And of course, they're going on feelings too, aren't they? Mm. So before you know it, they want to feel that they're in the presence of some, some august person. And they just look to you waiting for that feeling to drop. Where's that supposed to come from? Particularly if you've never really known it before. So these feelings are, they're incidental to the operation. They're often subsequent to it. And they're far from mandatory, right? In other words, the times that we're in should properly leave their mark on the search committee. Well, inadvertently, they do. Inadvertently, what people are looking for in Anglo-North America, I mean, I should keep it fairly specific here, in terms of, you know, your age seeking after some sense of worthiness to, to fill the breach for younger people on the one side, and then feeling at the same time qualified enough to go seeking after uh, elderhood to, uh, to bolster your, your position in the undertaking. These things all come from, I mean, I'm generalizing here, but they come from a lack of those things being in the air. The yearning is perhaps in the air, although I'm not sure that it often takes the rather elegant form of yearning. I think grasping, hunger, desirousness, um, deep misapprehension about what the consequences should be, a kind of um, naked uh, consumption of the enterprise is very much in the cards more often than not. These things, none of them bode very well. You know, the, I mean, I'm not making up anything here. The utter, I'll, I'll put it differently. I was thinking about this, writing some stuff down the other day about gurus and, and when I say Americans, I don't mean citizens of the United States. I mean, denizens of the Americas, let's call them, okay? Come from away people, European based typically and the rest. And I was thinking, so why is there always so much trouble when the gurus from hither and yon um, set up shop, you know, here in the Americas? Why does it always go to shit more often than not? It just, it just seems to. And uh, the answer is, well, clearly the Americans are not good at having gurus. I mean, that's abundantly clear. But you know, the reverse is probably just as clear, I think, that the gurus are not that good at having Americans either. 
because there's no shared understanding what the deal is. And so you have these terrible circumstances where acolytes um, basically surrender themselves, hook, line, and sinker, in every conceivable fashion, much to their regret in years to come or years later. And at the same time, you know, the guru is defending themselves in this regard as, um, as if this were somehow part and parcel of the arrangement. Well, the whole thing doesn't work. So it, it's a very tragic making circumstance that we have before us here, that we have so much hunger and so little tutelage at the same time, so little tradition, so much willingness to throw, you know, an ongoing sort of remnant tradition under the bus at a moment's notice in favor of some more cafe au lait style, um, more compelling, more uh, ayahuasca tinged uh, arrangement. So in other words, I'm not that, I'm not hopeful at all as a, as a person. I have no hope whatsoever in these matters, but neither am I particularly encouraged that uh, anything uh, worthy and compelling is in the works anytime soon. I think what we're dealing with is a compound fracture of so little cultural transmission between the generations. And the, the consequence of that is that we're looking at a scheme of brokenness that sows brokenness as it goes, rather than a scheme of seekers who are helping to assemble the super highway to understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was, I've been trying to write something recently. Uh, I speak about this a lot and write about this guru thing. Um, and it's a, a particular qualm that I think that I have with my generation. This podcast was really created because on the one hand, I felt extremely tired of being stereotyped in the ways that I felt so many people were stereotyping millennials, lazy, triggered, entitled, et cetera. But on the other hand, also really disappointed by my generation for being <laughs> lazy, triggered, and entitled and feeding into those stereotypes. Um, but one, one thing that I feel like we're doing is, and of course, <clears throat> not everyone, I'm, I'm making broad generalizations, but I feel that we've become, my generation has become more clear about loss and, and the grief of, of that loss, what we didn't get that we were entitled to when it comes to community or um, belonging in general. But I don't think we're doing a better job of addressing that. And I feel like part of it is because we're doing this thing simultaneously, which is that we're both dismissing authority and seeking approval simultaneously. <laughs> but we don't know that. Um, and so I feel like it perpetuates this, this thing with the gurus and the expectations. And um, That's like something like adolescents uh, swearing off their parents on the one side. I don't need you. I didn't ask to be born, etc. And on the other side, asking if they wouldn't mind lending the car for the weekend. That's how that rolls, right? So I would, I would take a certain exception with uh, something you said a couple of minutes ago, if you don't mind, and, and suggest the following. 
I don't think grief is an inevitable consequence of the frustration of a sense of entitlement or, or what was due you as a generation. In fact, I'll go further and say, I think grief is an early casualty of the resentment that ensues from the frustration of one's entitled um, inheritance. Grief is nowhere to be found in the arrangement. You have a common, you basically have a, a, a kind of Coke and Pepsi choice here. And one of them is um, trauma, a culture-wide sort of sense of trauma. And the other one is a sense of kind of chronic, chronic having been chronically abandoned uh, and there, and looking with great success for all the bad guys to lay it, to lay this at the feet of assuming utterly no personal responsibility for how you experience the world, how you see things, your willingness to be resentful. You, you, you signing up for that as a, as a kind of code of conduct and as the kind of sort of moral standard, mm-hmm. right? If you don't cop to trauma, somehow you're letting the side down, you know, I mean, this is guesswork from a bit of a distance generationally speaking, but I don't have to be your age to hear what's up with you, nor do you have to be my age to see what we're no good at. See, so I think we have some obligation to each other, well, more than some, quite a bit of obligation to each other. The part I'm thinking of right now is to reinstate grief as a legitimate consequence of realization, not as an alternative to realization. Okay, the, the word awake is a very, there's a lot of tutorial with the word awake. You know, uh, there's a lot of intentional communities and the rest who are fond of imagining themselves in those terms without investigating the word and the word itself will will help in this regard. So we have two parts to it because it's an old Anglo-Saxon word, right? And the prefix means it's a preposition in old English, means of or pertaining to, or yeah, that's close. And then the root word, wake, I mean, we use this fairly frequently in two cases, one, what ensues as the, at the end of a person's life, if you have friends who count. And the other thing is uh, the path you make through water or through air or through life. It's all the same. You reassemble the word. What's the condition of being awake? What does it actually mean? It has nothing to do with uh, kind of inherent spiritual savvy or alertness. It means this, that you cop to the fact that you are a swarm with consequences intended and otherwise that constitute the life that you perpetrated, the life that you perpetrated, not the one you quote received, you see. The condition of being awake is the condition of fessing up to the, the, realm, of, the realm of consequence, not the realm of intention. Yeah, that's the condition. And, and grief ensues as a result of awakeness, because that's the sound you make when you come to a degree of awakeness in a troubled time. You don't say hallelujah. You don't say look at me. You don't say follow me. You, you sob. This is entirely fitting today. And so those people who are 
after the grief, grief bypass of uh, either realization or uh, catharsis. I mean, that's a huge one, isn't it? For the ceremonially bereft, catharsis is the, is the mothership, right? Just I just need to have an, an experience to go with all my other experiences and then fill in the blank, then something will ensue. So, so grief is, um, no, it would be no surprise to you that I would say uh, grief belongs in the circumstance you and I are talking around here. It belongs there. It's not a problem to solve, nor is it a problem-solving device, grief. Yeah. Grief is not what you pass through on the way to some greater realization. Grief is the greater realization. I, about six years or so, uh, sort of semi-violently um, extracted myself from the life I was living, which I think was some degree of inner knowing that had not been made conscious yet that sort of pulled me away from what was, what choices I was making. And I, I really didn't know from grief at all. I was 27 at the time. No one had taught me that or anyone I, I knew. Uh, I think I, basically I thought it was a form of depression or something. And, mm -hmm. and I was grateful enough, I mean, to find your work among, among others, Francis Weller uh, and some other people. But I, I'm someone who never really dabbled in psychedelics uh, which I think has become far too popular, especially among young people. But it was interesting because I feel like when I spoke to people about psychedelics and the experiences that they had with it, I felt as if my experiences with grief were at least partially similar. Just for the sake of clarification, am I understanding you properly when you say that you're your encounters with grief somehow were um, comparable to what you were hearing other people in their experience of psychedelics? In some ways, in, in the sense that I feel like through grief, uh, that I was coming to terms with realities about the world, realities about my life, realities about the planet that other people seem to be saying psychedelics helped them with. And I wasn't doing any psychedelics. I wasn't doing any drugs at all. I was, I, I basically moved into a cabin in the woods for two years. I got incredibly physically sick, um, like really terrible skin lesions and acne on my face. So I was really afraid to go outside and I got divorced and I had to stop speaking to my mother. It was a really, really intense time. So I was alone for the better part of two years, especially the first. I was seeing a therapist. And that was about it. And I was living in nature. And so I spent a lot of time. I mean, I don't in I don't know how else to describe it, but in the depths of grief around my life, my mother's life, her mother's life, the planet, everything. Um, and really came to terms with mm -hmm. so much through, you know, not through like I would have these, I I I don't know what else to call them, but sort of semi-psychedelic experiences through 
grief where I would have these realizations and then sort of go and read a book that would kind of confirm, okay, you know, this makes sense. This is something that I was thinking about. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because I heard you speak about something in one of the conversations with Kimberly, um, either the series or the podcast, I'm not sure, but you talked about, you likened this sort of idea of awakening, not the the real sort of etymology-based awakening, but whatever people are saying is awakening with like a beam me up Scotty mentality, <laughs> um, which I thought was so indicative of what the difference I felt was a lot of the time between what I had experienced and what other people were saying they experienced with psychedelics. This difference between like ascending versus connecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I felt grateful, I still feel grateful to have those experiences, but I feel, I feel sad that, yeah, for other people that this version of awakening or enlightenment, which sounds similar, <laughs> is, it feels disconnect, disconnecting more than connecting or grounding. Think of the reliance upon the word help in this general conversation. Uh, I find that psychedelics help. Okay, could you elaborate? And then immediately it's upside. So the translation is instantaneous and it goes where? It's satisfying. The expectations are satisfied as if that's the best indicator there is of things working out as if things are supposed to work out as if that's the moral order. Right. And that's what psychedelics, if they help, that's what they help get you to. So you see, this is what I'm questioning. I'm not questioning whether or not they help. I'm questioning the notion of help. So here's a a sort of parallel circumstance. The woman's in touch with me. Uh, she's taking care of her dying father. Um, it's good. Things are reasonably okay, but she's a kind of single care provider, I guess you would call it. And she's trying to see him down and she's come across stuff I've done. So, so this is her dilemma. She said, my father is generally cooperative with what I'm trying to do with him, except when it comes to talking with him about dying. He's dying, but he won't talk about it with me. So my question to you is, how can I give my father the die-wise treatment? I think she may have used the phrase, the die-wise treatment, and at the same time respect his wishes, you know, not to talk about it. There's the dead end. See, it's all in the word respect. I'll, I'll, bri- I'll bridge to help in a second. So you might think to yourself, so what did you say to her? And I said to her, you can't. And she just flatlined. What? I said, No. No, you can't do both of those things. Why not? She said, I said, because you've backed yourself into the corner of, quote, respecting your father's wishes to be silent on the matter of his dying. As if you owe him that, as if that's what respect is. See, that's the dead end. What you got from me or from the stuff I've done is some case made for a lucid and lucidity making death right not a sudden departure not a a lsd enhanced event 
but a, a three-dimensional in this world. Here it comes, there it goes, death. You can't get that if he won't talk to you. It's not going to happen. I'll go further and say he has no right not to talk to you. He brought you into this world or, you know, he, he was halfway, halfway responsible. And, uh, and this is why, so that, so that this moment with you caring for him as he once cared for you, he withdraws entirely from the circumstance and leaves you to your own devices with respect to what his dying means, that there's no opportunity to, to enter into an, a, a meaningful and collaborative uh, shared understanding of what's up for grabs here or what it means to you to live the rest of your life without him and none of this appears and this is his right and I say bullshit that's not his right and I, I tend to be you know a community of one in this regard when I when I draw these things you know attention to these things so I'm saying to you as a parallel the notion that people are employing these various substances to help them without qualifying in a serious way what, what constitutes help. And generally, it seems to mean, as I listen to them, a kind of reduction or diminishment of obstacle. Mm. It makes things easier, though they may never use the word easy because it's suspect, but if you, if you simply track the notion of help, you'll get to easy fairly readily. So where's it written it's supposed to be easy? I mean, will somebody please find me the book is supposed to, that people keep quoting from, that says a better outcome is an easier, more user-friendly outcome. A customer satisfaction outcome is the outcome we should all be after. Where are you getting this from? And the answer is, Oh my God, you got no stomach for the struggle, man. You know, the idea that struggle is somehow beneath you, somehow doesn't belong. Somehow things are going terribly sideways. Like that's not supposed to be. Well, I don't know. I don't know where that's supposed to conceivably comes from. Last time I checked, particularly in our time, it's not that easy to be a human being. Not that easy at all. And if you have trouble with it, it's because it's a troubling thing in a, in a deeply troubling time. So you become a stranger in a strange land to your own times if you become addicted to things working out, things going clear, things being helpful. It's not a popular position. Okay, but I, in fact, I don't think it's a position at all what I'm advocating here. It's a willingness simply to look your time in the eye and see the trouble for what it is. It's not going away because you take LSD. You know, forget about LSD for a minute and just imagine counseling. No, you don't have to imagine it. You described it. You did it. Okay, so I used to do that. I, I, I provided the service, if you will. I repent, okay? I really do repent. And I'm not being a smart ass about it. I recognize that there's attributes and I recognize that there's limits. But the limit that never really appeared, but was always there and finally drove me to the very cliff edge of sustainability of the matter was my realization that the, 
that the the circumstance that we agreed to mutually the the thing we seem to corroborate but we actually colluded in myself and the and the person seeking the assistance was the notion that somehow the world drove them to my door they wouldn't disagree with that at some level the world drove them to my door and the notion was that a week or excuse me an hour at a time whatever it was once a week or whatever that was was perhaps not adequate but it not a bad start in order to do what in order to get where in order to rejoin an unchanged world that's what so wait a second the onus is entirely upon the deeply troubled individual in north america the answer is yes the onus is upon the deeply troubled individual to wrangle for themselves a workable wetsuit of solutions right whereby they can enter the fray when they leave the office and the world couldn't give a shit what you've just talked about for an hour couldn't is not interested in it and even if it listened to it it couldn't make any sense out of it anyway or you deem to be self-absorbed you know how it goes all of that sort of thing i'm not saying talking to people's not i mean give it give it your best shot i'm simply saying the assumption that you're supposed to be a better person for becoming more aware of yourself oh my god i mean you're taking a lot of chances here there's reasons that people are not so self-aware i'll go out on a limb and say one of them is because not being self-aware really works in the short term it really does and so you flip that and you ask the following question <laughs> Does being self-aware work? The answer is careful now. That's weapons-grade material because you will see things you don't count on. If you think it's all upside, if you think you know realization is the is the master plan, you don't credit the fact that you've avoided self-realization for good reason. You get you you, know, you come to it the way you come to your dead, slowly, deliberately one little baby step at a time very clear in your mind that you're not in charge and that a neglected ancestry is not an old folks home a neglected ancestry is a wasp's nest of ancestral prejudices and unresolved things so you move very slowly indeed hopefully with some some real i mean acute instruction on the matter over time and if that's what counseling is great last time i checked it's not what it is yeah i think i was in therapy maybe 10 or 12 times before i figured that out which i find yeah the percentage of time spent in therapy that is wasted that people i think so often use it as i did as a way not to learn much, but as a training ground for my own rationalizations um, and narratives that I'd already constructed. So using it as a space to kind of hone in on my capacity to lie to myself, basically. Uh, it's definitely a much different, much more challenging experience to, if it's a good therapist and a good connection in the right time, actually take in what they 
reflect and mirror back to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also, I find it extremely troubling because I think there's this other trend that's going around, especially with young people now where there's this obsession with privilege and who has it and who doesn't. And I have heard so many people, you know, what I think is a rationalization for not doing any kind of hard work to look at oneself, but this idea that all these other people have it so much worse than I do, you know, and so, you know, why it's just an expression of my privilege to go to therapy or to do any of these things that would help, uh, or maybe that's the wrong word, but uh, reveal uh, um, ourselves to us. Yeah, like like what right do we have? You know, people think, oh, my mother and her mother had it so much worse than I do. So why do I get to feel like, why do I have a right to feel as if my times are troubled or my life was troubled? Yeah, well, first of all, your, your times being troubled is not a feeling. It's a fact. It's a given, right? That's where this is unfolding in one. Two, misanthropy is not the same thing as understanding. And the misanthropy that you've characterized here, the self-hatred of the, the, the privileged cohort. I mean, it, I ask you this, what life form on the planet has come up with a hatred of humans as the fundamental solution to the world's problems. Did trees come up with that? Stones come up with that? Whales? Anybody? You know who the answer is. Humans came up with that shit. Okay, so they're very suspect arrangement. It's something like the police policing themselves. It's something like a sick doctor trying to treat himself or herself. That a misanthropic culture prescribes self-hatred as step one to achieving some kind of conscience and stepping down from the pulpit or the, or the uh, diadem of, of uh, privilege and so on in order to do what? I mean, ask yourself a very simple question. Let's, let's not debate whether or not there's such a thing as privilege. I'm not that interested in the question, but let's, let's grant that there is. Okay. So is it just, is it just part of the pigmentation Or is it conceivable that there's a kind of structural element to it that's not that respective of the pigmentation? I'm I'm suspecting it's the second one. If that's true, then you could say, not unlike what they say about power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, you could say something similar without being clever about privilege. Now, if that if that's your take on it, that privilege somehow is corrupting and that you do your, you know, you, it is your moral responsibility to step down. I don't know where you're supposed to end up. Okay. For all these people with all the solutions, but anyway, you're supposed to step down and vacate the privileged uh, platform for who to make it available to somebody else. So that what, and what, what befalls them, when they replace you, 
I ask. Okay, now you got a real problem with your privilege focus because you've demonized privilege. You haven't demonized privilege. You demonize privileged people. That's a much different thing. Could it be, without being clever, that one of the marks of privilege is to be so preoccupied with privilege as to see it, as to, it to be part of the lens that you look on the world through? Could it be? I suspect it is. I mean, the world's got a lot of problems. You, you not you personally, but someone thinking that the playing the privilege card just gets us to solutions faster is out of their skull. Why? Because we have demonstrable evidence that that's not what happens. It's not what's happening. You have a degree of kind of roiling snake, snake, what's the word I need? You know, this gaggle of snakes reproducing. That's what, that's what the, the self-hatred amongst privileged people looks like to me and sounds like to me. And uh, so that's why I'm not that, you know, compelled by the consideration. Do I think there's such a thing? Of course. Do I think that thinking that way is the key? Nope. The key to what? The key to a better, uh, here we go again. Okay, so, so the parallel would be this. I wrote a book called Money and the Soul's Desires a long, long time ago. I'm on a live TV talk show. The person beside me is um, head of a big charitable trust, right? And he's doling out money all the time. And as a clever guy, he found out that I went to divinity school. So in the course of the program, he says, he said, and as you know, and he gestures to me very grandly, money is the root of all evil, as you know. So he thinks he's quoting the Bible here, which he's doing so, but incorrectly. That's not what it says. It actually says the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not money at all. It's your relationship to it, my friend. But anyway, that didn't trouble him too much because he figured he sort of had me. So I said to him, well, if this, is, if this is true, I mean, it's obviously a troubling thing, and a lot of people don't do well with it. I'll grant you that. Evil is a little bit strong, but okay, let's go with it. If money's the root of all evil, you spend all your working hours giving it to people. Why? Why would you do that to someone? He had never thought the thought before. And he just went flatline in the moment, as did everybody else in the panel. They kind of looked at you like, shit, I thought that's what was supposed to happen. You're supposed to recirculate the money. But, but you just got finished making the case that money is fouling by nature. It's almost like, a, what do they call it? Ritual defilement. That's what money is in a puritanical place like North America. So, so how's it working so far to hold true to demonizing money? So you demonize privilege, you have exactly the same sequence of outcomes, it seems to me. This reminds me, too, of concepts um, of power. I feel that we demonize power outright as well, which feels naive and maybe perpetuating of the problems regarding power, which I think, which exist, you know, of course, abuses of power exist, but this whole idea that power in and of itself is bad, 
um, always struck me as odd. <laughs> I, I think you mean something more than odd, but yes, certainly. <laughs> it strikes me that way too. It strikes me as, as impoverished, to be frank, that you imagine that the, the, the fulcrum of human relationship is power and its distribution. I, you know, and this came up when I was talking with Kimberly, um, this thing about giving away your power, a phrase no one my age would ever have used, but it's become apparently a rather sexy beast to employ, giving away your power. So let's just think about the mechanics of that incarnation for a second. Is there such a thing as your power? I mean, and, and is the only problem for you to get your power back? And when did you give it away? And is it really yours? See, to my mind, I agree with you completely. Of course, there's such a thing as power in human relationships, like among, and between countries and the rest. But I think you personalize it to your detriment. In the same way that if you personalize your death and begin to talk about it that way, before you know it, you're talking about it as something that you can dispose of as you see fit, as suits you. Even though the fact of the matter is, every consequence that accrues to your manner of dying, you will not be obliged to live out. But the rest of us will. But that's nowhere in your calculation, is it? No, it's your death to do with as you see fit. And if you drag the rest of us through the unholy mire of self-absorption during the course of your dying, and we live the outcome of it while you're long dead, what will our death look like to us when it's our turn? And will your example not come to haunt us? And does, doesn't euthanasia begin to look like an awful good idea as a consequence of this personalization, uh, making a personal piece of personal property out of the dying that was entrusted to you? So perhaps by the same token, privilege is something that's entrusted to you as power might be, to do what? To do good with, okay? So then you're not responsible for the fact that you were born into a circumstance of privilege, but you are responsible to the fact that you were, you see? That's not negotiable in my humble estimation. You do have obligations to work out what it means, not to walk around trying to wash your hands like Pontius Pilate and see if you can break even on the deal so that you won't be viewed as anything other than a 50-50 split on how bad humans can be. Now, I, I'm, I'm afraid your age has really talked yourselves up a tree on this uh, privileged and power matter. Sorry about that. You should have checked with me first. <laughs> um, is there a sound in the background or is that a weird computer thing? Sounds like a chirping that's a bird, bird. That's maybe. a bird outside my window. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. As long as it's natural. Um, yeah. I want to, I want to talk about this and I, I think this is a false dichotomy, but, uh, individuality and community. And it's one of the things that you talked about with Kimberly that I was feeling so deeply 
and so strongly about, but wasn't really hearing anybody talk much about during the beginning of COVID and the ways in which we were approaching it as far as who we were protecting versus who we weren't. And I found myself, uh, as I found myself (laughs) a lot, but especially in that time, extremely sort of empathetic and understanding with certain positions, but at the same time feeling like they weren't capturing the full breadth of what we needed to be doing. So um, I feel, because I had, I just went through this process. I feel like I went through, and of course I'm continuing to go through, but I went through a major intense reclamation um, of my own individuality and my own self after I think a lot of many years of putting what I needed aside for the culture's expectations, the expectations of my parents, the expectations of partners. And I felt like it was this important extraction that I, you know, say, no, like I, I need to do what's right for me now. And I need to be independent and I need to really just ask myself, who am I and figure that out and, and live accordingly. And I, I think there are so many people who are rightfully upset and hurt by how community, culture, society hasn't really worked in their best interest in the past, whether that was a fundamentalist religion or just American culture, or I feel like a lot of us feel like we've been lied to and, you know, we need to take care of ourselves and protect ourselves because otherwise no one will do it. And I empathize with that. And yet I feel like I think you likened this me first stuff to a kind of fracking, um, Mm. like a subterranean fracking Mm -hmm. of whatever community mindedness we had in North America, if any. Um, But, you know, how to negotiate this, right? Like how to negotiate the importance of knowing who we are and not getting sucked into cults as an extreme example, but also recognizing that that doesn't mean community is, is all bad. Like power isn't all bad. Well, it's not, it's not bad at all. Community is not bad. Dark things ensue in the context of, of a community, but generally speaking in its absence. In other words, this, this prompts us to take a moment probably to define our terms a bit so that we're not using the word community as a synonym for any lumpy collective. Right. Right. I, yeah. I, res- I reserve the word the same way, for example, I would reserve the word poet, not for somebody who's clever, but for a particular devotional service paid to the language. The same token, then, I'd reserve the word community as an accomplishment, not an inevitable consequence of a glomming together of lost people. A lot of lost people together in one place is not a promising beginning. Uh, That's oftentimes what how intentional communities begin and end in the same week, even though they persist. 
but but as a as a community event, it's over almost before it starts. Not unlike America, actually. You know, America is a European fantasy, clearly. It remains a European fantasy that has never happened. It tried to happen, but it was it was strangely devoted to leaving behind everything that it named its newfound stuff after. New England, new, et cetera, et cetera. So I got a hornet in, right in front of me here. So if I seem mm-hmm. slightly distracted, but as long as it's natural, as you said earlier. <laughs> um, so, so that's what Moby Dick as a novel is. It's a poetic pronouncement of the death of America in the 1830s. It said, it's, it's over. It's not going any further. To quote Leonard Cohen, you know, he says, um, he says, your servant here, he has been told to say it clear and say it cold. It's over. It ain't going any further. And now the wheel of heaven stops. You feel the devil's riding crop. Get ready for the future. It is murder. Things are going to slide, slide in all directions. Won't be nothing, nothing you can measure anymore. The blizzard the blizzard of the world will cross the threshold and it overturns the order of the soul. When they said, repent, repent, I wonder what they meant. That's a song of his called The Future, which he crafted in the 1980s. And most of it is very recognizable today. But that your servant here, he has been told to say it clear and say it cold. It's over. It ain't going any further. It's not a very popular uh, responsibility to fulfill, right? But I recognize myself in the description, I think. So, so collectives are, are uh, numerical facts. Communities are achieved against considerable odds and are temporary. They throw themselves against the troubles of the times and never prevail, but find a way to persist in the teeth of the storm. And, um, and change. So traditional doesn't mean conservative. Traditional means a willingness to see the ebb and flow of what is asked of us and, you know, to proceed responsibly accordingly. So I, I agree with your initial characterization that that simply doesn't need to be uh, another exercise in apartheid. Some, this notion that there's a difference between the, the inalienable singular and solitary right of an individual to be that, and then some contentious um, glomming together of those individuals in a kind of reluctant and disturbed (laughs) kind of um, awkward, uh, shall we try this for a while? Cohabitation of sorts, I guess. I, I suspect that the 
the truth of the matter might be recognizable this way. If I can use the word indigenous in its etymological sense, the word means people who were born inside. That's what it means. It's a place-based identity. It's not a human-centered identity. Place-based people understand their fundamental capacity to be human, to be related to the fundamental capacity to be at home. Those two things are rudimentary and mutually uh, deserving of each other. The capacity to be human and the capacity to belong somewhere. See, nobody who looks like you or me in North America knows how to belong here for very legitimate historical reasons, right? They're talking about reconciliation now. It's premature. There was never any conciliation to reconcile. So as usual, they got the emphasis on the wrong syllable, right? They're putting the cart way out in front of the horse and saying, push. If we just say the right, if the Pope just comes and says the right thing, if we just make nice with each other historically and look across the chasm, no, people being together asks the best of us for sure to make it work. Being together for the sake of being together is an antidote for loneliness. It's not an attribute of culture. Culture, it seems to me, is fundamentally recognizable as an incarnation of the limits of humanity um, exercised, not exorcised, exercised, pushed, ultimately obeyed, but pushed. That's what the best of us is. That's what I mean by it. So the analogy I've often used to describe this is a tool, which if you need one, you're deeply grateful. If you're, if you're, if you can get one in your hand, but you're not wild about being called such a thing. See that? So that tells you that there's something implacable at work here. What's a tool? A tool by definition is the human hand is recognizable in the tool and its function. So what the tool does extend, extends the range of what the human hand is capable of, but still sees to it that the limits of the hand are recognizable in the tool. Hence the phrase, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. See, that, that's, you're, trying to, you're trying to go beyond the limits of the tool and press it into service for things it can't do. So this is a metaphor I'm talking about. So the beautiful thing about, <clears throat> excuse me, about tools is they teach you about human limits. If you abide by human limits, you do well by the tool and the tool does well by you. Some part of your imagination, because you've seen the extrapolation of the, the range of, that the hand's capable of, some part of your imagination does double duty and, and can see quite clearly that there's possibilities beyond what the hand could ever begin to approach. But because you're a tool-based people, you've agreed to abide by the limits that are, that are granted to you, not, not um, forced upon you, but granted to you in terms of your material life. 
And that's the, the substrate of that realization is grief. You can see beyond the way it is, but you can't really incarnate beyond the way it is. And to my mind, those four attributes, tool, range of the human hand, the willingness to abide by grief and to abide by limits and in so doing experience the grief of that constitutes cultured people. And that's a kind of outfit I wouldn't mind belonging to. Here's what I grew up in, and maybe you'll recognize it in yourself as well. I'm going to choose another word, which is not an exponential tool. The word is machine. You know, immediately you're in feeling like aesthetically you're in a different place. You can feel it instantly. If you're called a machine, what does it mean? It's high praise. It means you can work forever, right, with no apparent limits. Not very good for you, but people will think well of you if you if you're indeed our machine. What's a machine's relationship to the human hand? And the answer is there isn't one. Because a machine elaborates a certain aspect of the human capacity, but has nothing to do with the hand and especially not its limits. It has to do with the human will instead. That's what a machine does is it elaborates the human will. And the last time I checked, there is no limit to what the human will would will, you see. So now, instead of limitation, you have defiance of limitation. This sounds like the modern era now. And limits are for suckers. And submitting to them is for suckers as well. So what you end up with then is no capacity for grief. But when you bump up against limit, you have grievance about the limit instead of grief grievance right and limits are to be overcome now see so what do you call such a people my answer would be not cultured civilized civilized not a place i'd be interested in being but i am there i'm a product of that right so this is me trying to understand how human limit belongs it belongs. A cultured people are by definition limited people and they will be limited in time and they'll certainly be limited in space. They won't elaborate themselves across the countryside because they belong to a certain somewhere, not everywhere, and nowhere belongs to them. So I, even though I'm way apparently way beyond the field that your question dictated, I think the elaborations are there. I mean, we'd need a long time to do it, but the elaborations about false dichotomy between individuals and collectives. And a collective is not a consequence of enough individuals not being somewhere else. You have to credit the collective with a certain capacity that wasn't there when the individuals were individual. And a certain degree of subsuming your individuality such that the collective can... can uh, be sustained and and asking yourself whether your collect whether your community should be sustained in fact whether it's good for the world that your community persists because civilized excuse me cultured people wonder this and i suspect it's one of the reasons that you know when the national geographic dig teams discover another lost civilization 
And they always, you know, they always come back to catastrophe. It's always catastrophe that explains why they're a lost civilization. Well, maybe, maybe they got it right. Maybe they looked up one day and said, whoa, too many of us. And before it gets way over the edge, maybe we should stop being ourselves. Maybe we've loved this place almost to death. Maybe we got to retranslate what love of a place looks like and belonging somewhere may not be the same thing as being there. I was going to ask you, can we think in terms of is something good for the world? Um, Because I sometimes wonder if part of what we struggle with is a, or a lot of what we struggle with is a scale problem um, that we are thinking about. I mean, I think the name of my podcast sort of pokes fun at this because I don't actually think I or anyone can save the world. Um, But I, I feel like as you continued to explain what you were saying, that is one way that we can think in the scale of the world is like, where are we going? What is the trajectory of this if its inevitable outcome is this bigger right like this plus more people this expanded into more space uh which is interesting i guess because i normally think about like we need to scale down and and develop smaller communities smaller tribes i I have a piece in uh and i have a band and we uh we have a remarkable show which after three years we're mounting again and going to the UK for a tour uh, next next month, and then US and Canada through the fall. And there's a piece in there called uh, Thin White Line, which, I mean, I've never performed it live yet. So let's see if I can recall a small piece of it apropos of what you said. There was a traffic sign on the road ahead. Be prepared to stop. It said, didn't happen though. Sign's gonna change. Be prepared to be stopped instead. That's the beginning of it. So this basically what you said. It's you know, you've said it a little more easy to digest in terms of scale, but everything's too big. It's already too big. There's no sense talking about if 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 we just stop getting big. Well, first of all. We're already big, so it's too late to stop getting big. So now it's comparative, bigger. Okay, there's better language. You've already got a problem called big. Is a mania. So, so no more growing, including personal growing. Same kind of thing. So no more growing. So a willingness to live with, for, and about less. Okay, now you got a problem. What's that? Well, do you remember sanctity of the individual? Yeah. And you remember personal power and all that? Yeah. So tell me how personal power works with li- being willing to live with less. Being obliged to live with less. Now what? Oh, now see. So we got a bigger problem than our ecological problem. It seems to me, 
and you zeroed in on it when you talked about the sanctity, you didn't use the phrase sanctity of the individual, I'm using it. But this is our, our more architectural problem, is as long as we are slaves to the notion that the, that the individual is somehow the pristine building block of every conceivable human thing, we will forever crash land trying to create a smaller something because smaller has to be imposed. It, it's clearly not going to be chosen by sovereign individuals. Now, is it? We are, I mean, the, the track record's already there. Okay, so are you willing to submit yourself to a regime of less? Well, as long as it's voluntary. Oh, well, there's your, there's your out clause. So I think this is a, a structural problem that's not, it's not going to go anywhere, sadly. And I'm not going to be obliged to live with the consequences much longer, but you will. And I, I genuinely and deeply wish that things had, had got different during the course of my brief but intense foray into the arrangement, you know. Um, have I done everything I could? Nah, nobody does everything they can. Did I do something? Yeah, of course I did. Um, did I participate in some fashion? Yeah. Did I make trouble? Yes, I did. Did I make a difference? I have no idea what that phrase means. Did I make anything better? No, probably not. But my, my regime is not betterment. My regime is revelation. And, and subsequently, redemption. That's the business that I'm in. I'm in the redemption business. Redemption doesn't mean everything's going to be okay. The verb to deem is the root word for redemption. I deem it so. It's not quite a decision. It's more like a collapse into a realization that you probably would not have chosen. That's what deeming is. It's a, it's a kind of arithmetic summation. And I suspect that this is the business I've been in for some time. But in terms of making things more livable for your generation, I'm not persuaded any longer that the sum total of your generation is interested in that outcome. And, you know, the notion that as a collective now, same thing as you're saying earlier, we're generalizing like mad to get some things said. It, I don't think it's, I think uh, it's not clear at all that, that as a group of people, as a cohort, your generation has a particular fondness for the notion of elderhood. I think you think you're supposed to have, but I think that's different than functionally having it. And the parallel I could draw would be something like this. So you know, no news to you that men have been <clears throat> the subject of a particular and exquisite kind of slander for some period of time now. And anything that begins with, um, um, oh my God, I'm just blanking on the word I was just thinking of. Sorry. Uh, let, it'll come to me in a second. So <clears throat> one of the challenges that I was given recently to respond to a certain book in a talk. Um, the book was about, uh, was kind of the Bible of a kind of men's movement for a while. 
called Iron John. And in the book, there's a lot of talk about this notion of <clears throat> father hunger. Okay, so what's the implication of father hunger? Missing fathers. Uh, secondarily, maybe, but not primarily. After all, you can be hungry for stuff that's right in front of you. Number one. And number two, having consumed that which is right in front of you, your hunger can persist, can it not? You know it can. And so all of a sudden, the notion that father hunger is a consequence of the dereliction of duty of fathers, we have a little demonstration project that's ensued from those days. That's just the, was that the early 80s, I guess? Till now, 40 years, not very long. And it would be this. So more men working at home than ever before, right? The work at home thing that happened as a result of the, the, the plague. <clears throat> and that's just the way things are going anyway. So more men working at home. Therefore, it would appear, at least in crude numbers, that there's more men around the house for longer periods of time. And that would suggest to me that there's more fathering as well as more fathers that's going on around the house. The very thing that was being ple pleaded for, not 40 years ago. So how are we doing with welcoming men, those who are willing to turn that way back into the fray? What kind of welcome are they receiving? I ask you. I think you know the answer. I think I know the answer too. Okay, was it ever father hunger? Never was. Is it elder hunger? Nope. Throw all the elders you want up the pop charts of consumer culture. Go ahead. I mean, I won't be one of them because I won't, I won't sign up for it. But you know, and I know that it's becoming a bit of an industry, sadly, and it's a kind of lamentable and embarrassing kind of display. But there it is. And uh, when your generation has consumed its fill of, of would-be elders, We'll, we'll, you and I will talk again and see how your elder hunger is going. <laughs> and it won't, it'll still be there. If indeed that's what it is. I'm not persuaded it's actually what it is because it's very hard to have hunger for something that you've never tasted. And elderhood is a scant proposition in North America. So I think it's a very difficult case to make that any generation, yours included, has father hunger when you, excuse me, uh, elder hunger, when you don't have a very ongoing encounter with elderhood in the first place. So in other words, you're not missing it. You have some other relationship to it. It's a fantasized relationship. And it's not good for the people you're projecting it upon. And it's not good for you to do the projecting. But nobody's going to challenge you because the older people are just are thrilled beyond describing that you would turn to them at all. But there's a degree of carnivorousness in it that means nobody no good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it, it's more accurately God hunger, um, which I feel like- Of course like, it is. Yeah. <laughs> of course it is. But, but here's, the, here, here's, the, here's the angle that I think that that contemporary North American cultures come up with. Can we have God hunger just without the God stuff? 
can we can we can we just have can you just put a placeholder in there that keeps the spot warm but we don't have to submit in any way or be devout in any fashion or humiliate (laughs) ourselves anymore or give our power away right well try see what happens of course that's what's going on now monotheism without god that's what psychology is and that's why pop psychology is such a bizarre religion because it's not accountable there's no standards there's no nothing it's but everybody's got access to it for 20 minutes and uh you know when you listen to undigested pop psychology it can make you involuntarily wretch at least it does me because it's so saccharine no it's so it's so unachieved anyway you weren't asking my opinion about psychology (laughs) yeah I think it's the same with like the political left I think it's just like become a secular theocracy like we think without God where we somehow aren't you know at risk of or not at risk of, but we somehow think we're incapable of wanting to worship a divine authority, which of course is perpetual, I feel like, regardless of if the gods in the sky, if there are five gods, if, you know, um, I think, I I don't know, I wish we were a bit more honest about that. Sure, you and me both wish that. (laughs) Yeah. So I want to ask you about reckoning um, and I was really pleased to hear that you and Kimberly uh, created a book out of this project, which for those who don't know, started as a couple of podcast episodes and evolved into a series of five talks, um, which I was great, very grateful to participate in as they were happening. Oh, great. Um, and I want I wanted to ask you about the word actually I guess reckoning um, yeah. and what we are reckoning with or what is the reckoning and then maybe a second part of that inquiry is when it comes to belonging you know is that the I don't like the word goal but maybe all we have left to belong to the troubled times to belong to the reckoning in and of itself. Okay, so the first one was um, maybe why did we call it this? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, reckoning at, on, at the level of the dictionary has a rather bracing and extremely brief bordering on savage brevity. Yeah. It seems to mean something like this. A calculation of and settling of accounts. Yeah. I looked it up. <laughs> oh, you did? Okay, very good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's rather, it's rather severe. Yeah. Well, that's what we did. We, we engaged in something that was initially would have, uh, excuse me, the, the construction was this. <clears throat> Kimberly, who I didn't know, got in touch with me said, um, can I have you on this thing that I do? Uh, I have a few questions for you about uh, um, certain things that are becoming uh, less clear, hauntingly less clear for me. 
And I said, just sure. And um, so we did the thing that you may have seen. And as it went, she wept through much of the, the encounter. Now she's a weeper to begin with and very good at it. Unlike myself, for example, but, but she really, I mean, I didn't have my glasses on it and I knew she was weeping and it's very unnerving. You don't know is, is this going well? Is this, is it okay? Is it, is it, does this belong? Is it, um, you know, is somebody coming unglued before your very eyes? And you, you, just, you know, I didn't, like I said, I didn't know her at all, but she seemed to be capable of weeping. And so I took her at her, at sort of face value. This is what she was going to do. And this is what she was going to do with this time. So it wasn't for me to second guess her or ask her if she was okay, as if being okay is supposed to be the outcome of what we're doing. Right. And I guess we wondered initially about the moorings of her generation. And somehow it segued into a sort of some plague related or COVID related uh, cultural dilemmas that seemed to have ensued. And her great dismay that in a kind of a, she in real time during the course of our discussion was having serious and desperate second thoughts about the basic architecture of the presumption to help, you could say. So we got the, um, we did it, finished. Um, later that afternoon, my wife received a message from her thanking her for arranging it. And then kind of saying, I'm, I'm basically, I'm a mess. Okay, let's do another one. Let's do it tomorrow. Like literally the next day. Uh, nobody will be watching because there's no time to, to, to popularize it, but so be it. And somehow, I'm not saying it should be about you being disassembled, but the disassembly is the prompt of us meeting again. And so we did. And somewhere in there, I suspect the things became palpable and available to both of us that were just conjecture, perhaps the first time out. That is, that the, the sense of broken downedness is real. It's not a temporary personal encounter. It's real. And it's, it's, it's among us. And it's happening. So the word, the reckoning, <clears throat> to my mind, is obviously a consequence of being willing to, to look through the window at the dominant culture of North America and simply wonder whether it can, whether it can work, whether it can carry its own weight, or whether it's not time <clears throat> to see it down in some fundamental fashion, you know, by increments always. But, and uh, so that was the reckoning. If you're invested in fixing people, which I think it's fair to say Kimberly was when I first talked to her, she was, you know, women's health and reproductive health and so on. And certainly at that level, it's not for me to call it anything other than honorable. What I'm saying about it though, is the notion that the, the injury is a consequence of, how should I put this? I'm, I'm, I'll say it differently. The injuries that she was preoccupied by belong to a culture in the process of breaking down. This is where you'd expect to see the breaking downness in many venues, but that's, 
That's one of them. So I'm a, I, I would be concerned that the, the, the recalibration of personal woundedness as unnecessary casualty instead of as weather vane. I tend to come to it in the second way. It's a weather vane. It's, it tells you about the prevailing winds. It's, uh, you know, certain people and certain kinds of dispositions are sentinel species now. And they're telling us information that's very difficult to get from relatively intact people. Relatively intact people in a crazy time aren't to be trusted, really. So, so somehow that's where it went. And then she wanted to do five more uh, based on books that I'd written. And so <laughs> I, towards the end of last year, we did the other five. And then um, the thing that really cemented it as a writing project. I mean, I, I never did look at the uh, transcripts until they were sent to me to say they have to be doctored. So we get the yabuts out of, you know, so make it readable. Mm -hmm. And I knew that these things were not self-enclosed, that they, they had a relationship to each other, but they had no particular reason to exist as a, as a book without some other treatment. So we did. Um, we wrote each other a letter. I didn't know what she was writing. She didn't know. I, we had no guidelines about length or intensity or nothing. <clears throat> but they were, you know, from, as I put it, from a, an older man, not yet old, to a younger woman, no longer young. That's the, that's the arrangement that we obeyed. And so there's a generational aspect to the, the letters that are addressed hers to me and mine to her. And that's the way the book concludes. That's the last 40 pages, I guess, or 50. And um, it makes it a, a real-time uh, event. And that's where the reckoning really, the measure of the reckoning took place in that towards the end. You know, basically I was saying, what am I asking of you by introducing you to the pugilistics with which I engage the world? I said, you know, I'm trained in it. I'm trained, so it's not, it's, it's not devastating for me, but I'm not persuaded that that's a common attribute or that people have such training. And I wonder if I shouldn't leave well enough alone. And, you know, stop already. Like, sort of th that's the gist of it, you know. So the reckoning is not adjudication. The reckoning is, is an attempt to catch up with the consequence of the oh my God, reporting on the oh my Godness of it all. That's the best way to say it. That's great. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so we have only a few more minutes. Okay. Uh, and since I am of my generation and you are speaking to someone of my generation and a lot of the listeners are of my generation as well, which I would categorize as late 20s to mid 40s, um, I think we are, again, generalization, but I've spoken to so many people who young people who are yearning so deeply for to belong, I guess. 
to yeah. a place, to a thing, to anything. Um, and if you were to give guidance around what it is that we're supposed to belong to at this time, what might that be? Yeah, I wouldn't do that. Um, I would instead direct our mutual attention to this question of belonging mm -hmm. and ask a couple of questions about it. First of all, is it a feeling? <laughs> I mean, most people are counting on it. I don't have a feeling of belonging. Well, how do you know? Well, uh, well, I would know if I did. Well, how would you know? I, kn I know what your solution is. The longing would be gone. That's the math you've done. If you belong somewhere, then the longing after belonging would be gone. It would be solved. And so I think this is going to be a useful way for us to end our conversation here. Let me give an alternative to longing first. And that would be the word desire. Now, we talked about carnivorous instincts with respect to elders and so on earlier. So I think this word really belongs. In a puritanical culture, of course, desire, everybody immediately goes, ah, yeah, yeah, pelvic. But there's, there's many ranges of desire, and the pelvis is not involved in most of them, okay? There's a lot of wanting, okay? So how does desire work? Think at the level of food. This is the easiest way to, I think, get access to it. How does desire work? Well, I have to inhabit it and then give it a voice, it works something like this. Listen now, I don't know about you, but I've been, I've been had this desire for a little while now. It's a little, it's a weighty thing to drag around, no? But here's the thing. The object of this desire that I am to you is actually right across the room. Now, it could be a person, could be an item on a menu, same thing, obviously, in many cases. It could be an idea. The, the, the actual content is irrelevant for what I'm about to say. So there's the object of your desire. Yeah. Go get it. Okay. So that what? Well, both of us know you're tired of this desire thing. You wouldn't mind just having for a while instead of wanting. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be a great trade? It would be a great trade. Well, just go get it then. And then, then what happens to you? Well, I'll, I'll finish. I mean, I'll leave you alone. I'll, well, you're done with me. My work here is accomplished <laughs> just go get what you want baby so of course you go get what you want whether it's a meal or whatever it is and what do you discover later that day next day next week at most here i am again hey so how'd that work out with the uh, object of your desire well it wasn't everything i had in mind so yeah i you know i thought it was worth a try <laughs> i thought it was worth a try i knew it wasn't going to be everything but uh until everything shows up, that seemed to be pretty close. Anyway, you get the idea. So before you know it, what happens is desire is gone. Okay, why don't we go for round two? Let's try it again. The whole time desire is whispering to you over and over again, all I'm trying to do is quit. And that's the lie. Desire's cover story is trying to stop desiring by having the object, right? But in actual fact, desire's whole racket is to keep going. That's how it actually works. It keeps going by finding fault with the object of the desire. 
how does this compare to longing, which is often misunderstood as the same thing, longing and desire? Well, ask yourself how many times you've ever described yourself as longing. It's so uncommon, uh, uncommonly used word that that tells you something. The word desire is much more prevalent. Okay, it's because longing is not very prevalent. That's why desire is much easier to get a, a handle on. Longing, I think, works this way. It's not trying to stop. Here's how longing works. Isn't it something to be alive? It is. Don't you forget that almost every day? Jesus Christ, I do. What is, what's up with that? I don't know myself. Sometimes it's good enough just to be able to draw breath and see the sun come through the window. Yeah, but not very often. I know. What's the matter with this? Man, I just don't know. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean we're not capable of doing it again. I just wish that was enough. But if you... See, if you left me alone with the longing thing, then I would never be troubled by forgetting that it's good enough just to be alive. I know. This is why I'm, I'm kind of your companion for, for the duration now. And here's our deal. I'm happy to remind you that it's really something to be alive from time to time because you will forget. And on the other side, if you could thank me once or twice, that's all we need. I'll keep, I'll keep reminding you and every once in a while, you're grateful. That's what longing is. It's not trying to stop, you see. It's trying to keep going. Longing is a way of understanding what a remarkable deal life is. Not, not good all the time. Better than good. Full. So longing is not trying to stop. It's not pretending. <clears throat> and the B-E in front of the verb to long is the Anglo-Saxon um, intensifying prefix. So if you belong, it means you're really longing now. Oh, come on. It doesn't get any better than that. So if you're belonging to a place, to a time, to a collective, to, to, an, to a an, an mobilizing idea, you know, to someone romantically and all the rest, Generally speaking, the shape that should take is your longing is accentuated as a consequence of belonging. And then you can mobilize the longing on behalf of the better day that should be the root condition of your belonging. Thank you. See, I'm capable of, of seeing things in this way with no recourse to hope whatsoever. None. None. It's a, the situation is hopeless. Okay, but not, but not free of longing, thank God. Well, I, I might be um, very rare in my generation to say this, but I find that refreshing uh, to not be chasing it's, the hope. It's, it's, even, it's freshing, <laughs> not even refreshing. <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty much on the, on the money too. Mm -hmm. You can count on last 10 minutes of what I said. You can count on it. You got to practice it though, because belonging is a skill. It's not a feeling you have that just absolves you from being troubled. Quite the contrary. When you belong, your troubles are more apparent than they were before. But you can operationalize your longing now on behalf of the better day that your longing is for.
And I think that brings us to the uh, staggering conclusion that we (laughs) promised each other 90 minutes ago. Yes. Well, thank you again for spending these 90 minutes with me. I appreciate it. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you for asking. All right. Thank you all for sticking around and listening to that conversation with Stephen. I highly recommend checking out Reckoning and the rest of his work and Kimberly's work as well. I'm looking forward to releasing the episode with Kimberly in the next few days or so. If you would like to support the podcast and uh, participate in the community, Substack is a great place to do that. You can sign up for free. It's basically like a newsletter, but way cooler. I don't really actually send newsletters, but I send out all the episodes when I post them. There's a space for you to actually comment on the episodes and engage with me, share your thoughts or your questions, etc. I do open threads. The book club is coming back and yeah, there's lots of writing and poetry that I send out as well, all having to do with the same themes of this podcast. So Anya Katz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S dot substack dot com is where to join us. Again, please visit my website, anyakotz.com slash podcast dash meetups and join us for one of the meetups this summer. Suggest to us a place to meet if you live around any of those areas. I'm going to play you out today with a song that Stephen mentioned in our episode, The Future by Leonard Cohen. Uh, Figured that made sense to play. So I hope you enjoy the song. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and look out for part two of this conversation with Kimberly coming to you in the next few days. All right. Sending you all my love. Until next time.
I've seen the nations rise and fall I've heard their stories, heard them all But love's the only engine of survival Your servant here, he has been told To say it clear, to say it cool It's over, it ain't going any further Get ready for the future It is murder Now we don't let children in it.